Some of you doubtless know this. There's a question often comes up um, every year around the celebration of the Incarnation, around Christmas time. There's a question as to how many wise men came from the East to worship Jesus. Now, many have thought, because they bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, many have thought, and traditionally it's been thought, that there were three wise men. But interestingly, when you look at the text of Scripture, we're just told that there were magi from the East. In the Greek, it's magoi. It's just literally wise men. It's just a plural. So we are not not told how many specifically came from the East, having seen his star, and then that star would lead them right to where the young child Jesus was, And they made that journey to do what they did, and that was worship him. But there's a question. How many wise men were there? Were there three? Maybe there were three. Maybe there were more. We know there was more than one. That much we know. It's a plural for the noun that's used there. But as far as how many wise men were needed to solve the problem that had faced the church in Acts chapter 6, we know the exact number. Seven wise men were needed. I say that because you see that one of the requirements for these men who would serve in this way was that they had to be full of wisdom. There was a problem in the early church. The early church had faced some problems. There was hypocrisy from within. We saw that in Acts chapter 5. There was persecution from without. We also saw that in Acts chapter 5, and we see that a little bit earlier as well. But now all of a sudden there's this kind of division that began to form that you had these Hebrew Jews who were being accused by these Hellenists, these Greek-speaking Jews, they were being accused, the Hebrews were, of neglecting the Hellenistic Greek-speaking widows in the daily distribution. Distribution of food, maybe clothing, likely also alms, and so on. We see some of the problems that growth brings. And growth can bring problems, especially if you put unwise people without the necessary qualifications in positions. But we'll also see in our text, problems can lead to great growth. In many ways, if you put wise people who meet the necessary qualifications in roles of service for the local church. The men that we're going to consider today, they met the description of the latter. Wise men who were qualified to serve in the roles that they were called to serve And there was blessing that came upon the church and the spread of the gospel as a result. Now, before I create context, I do want to say this. Um, Last week's message had so many important applications. I'm not going to rehearse them. If I were to rehearse all of the important applications that were in last week's message, we would basically begin next week's message where I'm beginning right now. But I would encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's message, or even if you did, to go back, because there are so many important and pertinent applications in that text um, for every Christian, and I think for our church as well. Uh, But with that being said, let me just create some context. I kind of did telling you about the issue that the church faced. There was a division, a murmuring that began to happen because some in the church were saying, hey, our widows, the Greek-speaking widows, they're being overlooked, and no motive is given, No, we're not told why that was happening. Was it just because the church was growing and there was administrative inefficiency? Likely that's it. Was it a language barrier? Because some of the Hebrew Jews who were Christians at this point, maybe because they spoke Hebrew and Aramaic and they weren't as fluent in Greek perhaps, maybe there were some linguistic issues, maybe. Maybe they were just being biased and they were showing favoritism to the Hebrew-speaking widows and not 
showing the proper due kindness to the Greek-speaking widows. We don't know, but we know there's a problem. And we see that by the grace of God, the apostles don't just let it sit. They're not just like, okay, there's a problem. Don't worry, it'll work itself out. We don't want to get our hands into this. We don't want to get involved. Just let the people handle it on their own. No, they knew they had a position of leadership. They addressed the matter. They didn't leave it alone. They heard the complaint. Note that too. They actually heard what was going on. They didn't say, hey, just stop complaining. They heard what the complaint was, and then they sought to address the matter. And when they did, they gave the church implicitly a lesson on priorities and the importance of God's word. See, they didn't think that serving tables, meaning being at these tables to give out food to widows, being at these tables to maybe give out clothing and alms, they didn't think that that was below them. We're going to see they thought it was a serious priority that needed to be addressed, so they needed qualified men who could actually oversee that well. They didn't think it was below them, but they knew if they undertook that responsibility that it would distract them from what they were called to do, keeping them from the ministry of the word. And in that, they taught the church a very important lesson on priorities and the importance of the word of God in the church. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he recalled reading a statement that was made by the Lord Provost of the city of Glasgow. And basically, that's the chief magistrate in Scotland. And interestingly, I might even better say, strangely enough, this secular man, this man who served in that position at the time, chief magistrate of Scotland, he was invited to speak at a religious conference. Um, as Lloyd-Jones noted, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's a good point. He said that um, such men, this, he said, this is the madness of which the church has become guilty. Um, those men are not to speak, they are to listen, and they need to be preached to. So he, he was saying basically part of the problem that he saw in his day and it's part of the problem that happens in our day is that the church should be a place where the word of God is expounded and to think of offering a local magistrate an opportunity at the pulpit just to expound upon whatever he would want to, that's a problem. It was a problem then and it is a problem now. Quick other aside, I've seen that firsthand. I've seen uh, leadership conferences in local churches where both the pastor who was hosting the big leadership conference, this was at a church in Brooklyn, big leadership conference, and they had a whole list of speakers. And they have the church there, and the church is there to hear about these speakers, and a whole bunch of them are a bunch of people that reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, believe in a whole bunch of different things, and yet this pastor is encouraging the church to kind of clap and celebrate that they were going to have these people there ministering from the pulpit in that church. That's a problem. It was a problem then in Martin Lloyd-Jones' day, and it is a problem now. But that's an aside. When this person goes and he speaks to this um, conference, he stands up and he declared to the assembly, and this is part of the problem that happens when you invite such individuals to have the pulpit. He declared that he was a plain man. And he said he didn't have time for doctrine or dogma and theology. He said he just wanted the church to tell him how he ought to love his neighbor. How to love his neighbor as himself. And what I want you to see is that what that secular magistrate had no time for, the apostles made time for. What that man disregarded, the church is to prize. After all, you can't really keep the second greatest commandment rightly to love your neighbor as yourself if you forsake the greatest commandment, loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're not going to do either perfectly, but if we jettison the greatest commandment, there's no way we're doing the second greatest commandment well. And I think one of the things that we see here is that if you don't love hearing God's voice, 
Your own voice won't do others much good, yet alone lasting good. We need that. The word of God is a priority. I would argue very clearly that preaching, the preaching of God's word, is to drive adoration of God. The preaching and teaching of God's word is to drive understanding of the revelation of God. And both of those things, adoration of God, understanding of the revelation of God in the Bible, those things are to drive service to men and women. That's the fuel that's to be in your tank when you're serving others, when you're loving your neighbor as yourself, when you're taking that role of a servant and so on. Adoration of God and an understanding of the revelation of God. And when the word of God leaves the foreground of the church's ministry, no matter how worthy the undertaking is that takes its place, the church has abandoned the apostolic foundation for ministry. So the apostles are doing a lot right there in verse 2 when they say it's not right, it's not pleasing for us to serve tables and to abandon the ministry of the word. Are they saying serving tables is not important? No way. But they knew it would distract them from their calling. But they couldn't just leave it unfixed. It was a serious thing. The widows needed to be taken care of and the church had to be protected from division. So they ruled themselves out as those who would serve tables and they presented the following solution to the believers. So picking up where we left off last week, we begin in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, where we read, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Acts 6, verses 3 and 4. So again, I'm leaving behind material that we covered last week. Uh, and when indeed, we spent quite a bit of time covering some uh, material in the beginning of verse 3. But for now, consider the task the apostles presented to the congregation. They said to the congregation that they were to seek out from among themselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And those individuals would be responsible to oversee the distribution, the daily distribution. Now, first thing I want you to see is that they couldn't just have the congregation pick anybody, right? It wasn't like, hey, just go out there, and if somebody has a heartbeat and a decent pulse ox, get them in. You know, we, we, all, that's all we need. We need somebody who is basically awake and alive, and we will throw them into a position, and they will do a great job. They didn't do that. There were standards, and sometimes, in the name of Christian love, there can be a lessening of Christian standards when appointing people to positions of ministry. The irony in that is this. The Christian standards that God's word requires for, say, the eldership, or for, say, a deacon, the diaconate, those standards are an outworking of God's love to God's people. Qualified individuals who serve God's people, are an expression of God's love. So I want you to see this. If a group of elders or a congregation or a licensing council in the name of Christian love seek to ordain somebody to a position that they are not qualified for, what they have done is they have sought to protect one person from the needed honesty that they needed to hear, and they have put many people at risk of suffering needlessly. That's what happens. 
When you say in the name of Christian love, we'll put this guy in the eldership, this person in the diaconate, this person in that position, whatever it might be, in the name of Christian love, what you're doing if that person is not qualified, if that person has moral or ethical issues that they need to address, help them address those things. But if you put them in a position that they're not qualified to serve in, in the name of Christian love, you have protected someone, quote unquote, from the needed honesty that they needed to hear. And you have put many at risk of suffering needlessly in their ministry. The qualifications are there for a reason. Second thing I want you to see, and this is implicit, but I think it's worth us knowing. The congregation had to know something of these individuals, right? Like they had to choose seven men who were of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. By way of implication, that means these guys had been around long enough that the people actually knew them. The people could actually say, I know that guy. No, no, no. That is a good brother. He's full of the Holy Spirit. You can see that his life is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I see the fruit of the Spirit in his life. No, there's wisdom. I've seen him solve that problem. I've seen him bring peace to a situation that was a difficult situation. They were actually around long enough that the people knew these things about them. And I just want to say this by way of application. If you are going to walk in the pattern of the seven, the seven who are chosen here, and it should be the goal of every man in the church to do so, and even by way of uh, application, every woman, every man or woman in here, by God's grace, should be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and so on. A great first step would be being around. <laughs> Make it a priority to be around the people of God. And I just think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes, every one of us, we could all look in our hearts and say, wow, it's weird sometimes how I can make a priority of being other places and I can make excuses as to why I'm not in the assembly of God's people. I can make a priority of other things and I can make excuses for God's things. I think every one of us should do inventory and to see where we might be guilty of that. Spurgeon had told of a uh, response of some individuals to an announcement of a uh, prayer meeting and a lecture at a local church on a Wednesday night. I think this was accompanied by an exhortation. Whoever the pastor was, because I don't think uh, this, I think Spurgeon saw this. I don't think he was actually the one issuing this. The pastor had issued an exhortation to the assembly to be out on that Wednesday night for prayer, saying not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but to do so all the more as the day of Christ approaches. And then Spurgeon went on and he told uh, the story, three examples of individuals. I'll just give you an example of one who he called Brother A. Brother A um, thought on that Wednesday night, he thought it looked like it was going to rain. And he concluded that himself uh, and his family had better remain at home. And then on Thursday evening, it was raining very hard. And so he ordered a carriage and he brought his entire family to the Academy of Music to hear a lecture on the intelligence of the lobster. And what's the point of that? I think the point of that is to look and say how we can make excuses when it comes to being around the people of God and how we can make priorities for being around things that we want to be around. And I just want to say, I think a great, a great step to protect us from doing that is if we actually think of what keeps us from being around the assembly of God's people more. What is it? What's keeping us from doing that? And what are the excuses that we make and what are the priorities that we so seek to keep? Maybe if we'd see the folly of some of the choices that we make, we'd be better protected against making such choices.
Okay, let's look at the qualifications. We're in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, qualifications of the seven. First, we're told they needed to be of good reputation. You might see if you're looking in the Pew Bible that the word good is italicized. It basically means that they needed to be of reputation. More literally, they needed to be testified of. People could actually testify that they had, implicitly, a good reputation. They were well reported of. They were thought of as men of integrity. We see that this kind of thing is spoken of with regards to Cornelius and Timothy later on in the book of Acts. Acts 10.22, Acts 16.2. These men were to be full of the Holy Spirit. So to be full of the Holy Spirit is, to use language from Ephesians 5, it's the opposite of being filled with wine. When you're filled with wine, you are under the influence of wine, right? If somebody is drunk, right, and they're filled with wine or intoxicating drink, they are then under the influence of intoxicating drink. Well, if you're full of the Holy Spirit, it means that you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You're living in such a way that is demonstrating yielding to the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit's influence would be evident. The bearing of fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, um, long-suffering, and so on, those things would be seen in a person's life if they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Important for the roles that these men were going to have. If they're full of the Holy Spirit, then they're going to be protected against being prejudiced against different widows, you know, pre preferring the Hebrew-speaking widows over the Greek-speaking widows, and things like that. And finally, they had to be full of wisdom. Full of wisdom. In other words, they needed the necessary prudence to discharge the responsibility before them with efficiency and with excellence. So you needed qualified people to serve in these roles. And it was serving tables. Now maybe it was giving out alms and finances. Doubtless it involved giving out food. And it wasn't just anybody who was going to serve in this role. These people needed to be qualified. Quick moment of reflection. You and I could take a moment and say, how are we doing with these qualifications? Is it true that it could be said of you that you're a person of reputation, implicitly of good reputation, that people know you as a person of integrity, that you stand by the things that you say and that you are a person of character and you love the Lord Jesus and so on? Is, is that something? Would somebody say that you're full of the Holy Spirit? Well, we see that later on in the book of Acts in contrast to being full of other things. People could be full of envy. People could be full of rage. People could be, people could be full of themselves. People could be full of a whole, a whole bunch of things. And what would people say about you and me? Like, oh, okay, that, that's a brother, that's a sister, full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, they, they, they have love that's showing from them, peace that's showing from them. Or are we full of, you know, self and, you know, anger, rage, ma uh, malice, bitterness, whatever it is. We don't want to be full of those things. By God's grace, we want to be yielding to the Holy Spirit and full of the Holy Spirit. Would somebody say that we are wise? That person makes wise choices. Uh, th that was a good choice that they made. They're prioritizing well in their lives. Or no, that the person needs to grow in wisdom. And maybe a good step in that is seeking wisdom. See, one of the things that happens, this is a quick pastoral aside, is that usually the people who are wise know they need wisdom. If you think you don't need wisdom, like, I have enough wisdom, thank you. I got plenty. I could disperse it, but I don't need to receive it, then you probably are lacking, you are lacking, you're definitely lacking humility. Um, but you're also lacking a wisdom in that as well. So a great step of being wise is knowing you need it. We need the word of God. We need counsel with others. We need other Christians to rub off on us. We need to learn from other people. 
This is just an outworking of wisdom. So how are you doing with those things? Question for reflection. By God's grace, all of those things can be happening in the right direction right now. You could be growing in wisdom as you hear God's word. You could be a person of character as you hear God's word with intentionality and show reverence to God's word. You could be full of the Holy Spirit as you yield not to your flesh, but yield to the Holy Spirit who has inspired the word of God and speaks through it. Okay. Now, look at what the ministry of the seven would do for the apostles. The seven would do that. They would oversee the distribution that was necessary for the widows, but then what would the apostles do? They said in verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Serving tables, very important, but they had a very specific calling. They couldn't serve the tables and oversee that responsibility and at the same time devote themselves to faithfully executing the responsibility that they had to give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of God's word. Now, the language that's here, you won't catch this in our English translations necessarily, but the language that's used here, give ourselves continually, it's a Greek word that's used that's been used already in the book of Acts. It basically means to apply unwearied effort, to persevere in. This word was used in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, how the church was devoting itself together to prayer. This is what we all are to do. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, we are to devote ourselves to prayer. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, the exhortation is very clearly there. Devote yourselves to prayer. Same word, apply unwearied effort. Give yourself continually to prayer. And we see that the church um, did that. Also, the post-Pentecost post church devoted themselves, devoted, same word, to the apostles' teaching, they devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And here the apostles state that they would give themselves, devote themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now in this, they become a pattern for those who would serve in pastoral ministry. In this, they become a pattern. Well, how do they become a pattern? What other scriptures would support them becoming a pattern for those who would serve in the eldership or pastoral ministry. I'll read to you a few. Paul told Timothy concerning Timothy's ministry, and this would apply to those in the pastoral ministry and the eldership, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And again, Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. A little bit of ecclesiology, meaning the study of the church. If you have a church where elders are not devoting themselves to the word of God and prayer, something is out of whack and it's not going to be long until there are some problems that are going to show themselves. It must be a priority for those who serve in pastoral ministry slash the eldership to give themselves to the word of God, to give themselves to the teaching of the word, the dispersing of the word, and to prayer. And if that doesn't happen, the church will suffer and oftentimes the life of that pastor will result in shipwreck.
This week, I heard a, um, a chapel message from uh, Donald Whitney speaking at Southern Seminary. Uh, the chapel message was called The Almost Inevitable Ruin of Every Minister and How to Avoid It. Donald Whitney told of a story that was recounted to him um, by a friend, um, Morton Holt. As the two drove past an influential Bible college, Holt told Whitney uh, the story of a man who had let the ministry, to use Whitney's words, let the ministry keep him from Jesus. Whitney requested for the story to be recounted to him via an email, and this is what Holt wrote. He said, the story I told you about was about a friend of mine who was a principal of a Bible college, who after his fall came to see me and told me that on the basis of two things he fell. He had become so busy in the Lord's work that he simply neglected to read the scriptures and pray. The long-term effects of this neglect, he believes, led to his adultery. When I shared this with, and he goes on to name a, uh, a minister from England who had visited there earlier in the year, when he was in South Africa, his words to me were, I almost interrupted you before you told me the two things, because I wanted to say I knew exactly what they were in light of discovering them to be true of every known case of ministerial adultery in the UK. So I say that to say this. For those who would be in the ministry, who are in the ministry, who are called to pastoral ministry, let the apostles' commitment to the word of God and to prayer be a model for you and embrace it. To use words from Donald Whitney, don't let the ministry keep you from Jesus. And you say, well, I'm not in pastoral ministry. Does that apply to me? I would say it would apply to you in this sense. You want to make a priority of being in the word of God and spending time in prayer. And then you want to make a priority of being around the preaching of God and praying with the saints. That's how I think you could apply it. You say, I want to do those things privately. I want to do those things publicly. I don't just want to do them privately and forsake them publicly. I don't just want to do it publicly and forsake them privately. I want to do both. I want to read the word of God privately and pray and spend time with God as somebody who actually has a relationship with the living God privately. And I want to be under the ministry of the word of God corporately. And I want to actually have moments in my life where I'm around other Christians praying together in the same room, corporately. I think it's a great way to guard anyone's life from all the different temptations that will come your way, uh, yet alone those who are in ministry. Well, the wisdom of the apostles' decision um, was seen very clearly, immediately recognized. Look at verses 5 and 6. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So note the beginning of verse 5. The apostles' plan did what? It pleased the whole multitude. And the people recognized that the plan was good. Next, we're introduced to the seven names of these men who were chosen. Now, something for you to note, many people note that the seven names that are here are all Greek names. And so some people say, well, that's you know, part of the way that it worked, that the congregation said, look, this issue is with Greek-speaking widows. Let's choose seven men who are Greek so that there aren't, say, language barriers or things like that. That's possible, but just as a quick little note here, remember that we have examples in the scriptures of Hebrews who were Hebrew-speaking Christians who also had Greek names as well. 
Often in that culture, you had like a Hebrew name and a Greek name and so on. So I wouldn't read too much into that. As far as the men that were chosen, Stephen, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about him. You're going to see he's introduced first, I think, because he's kind of the leading man among the seven. He is going to become the first martyr in the church. You are going to see in the verses that follow and in the chapter that follows, he will be persecuted and subsequently he will be martyred for Jesus' name. But that's coming up, Lord willing, in the future. In, um, in Acts 21, we hear a little bit more about the second man who is named. That's Philip. Uh, there we're told that he was an evangelist, and in Acts chapter 8, we'll see Philip doing some evangelizing. So he's the second person who's listed. We know something of Philip and Stephen in the text of Scripture. The rest of these individuals, we don't know anything about them in the Scriptures. Um, nothing more is said of them. Prochorus, if you look at that third name, it's said, at least according to history or tradition, that he was a bishop in Nicomedia, and he was martyred in Antioch. And it may be true, that comes to us through history. These next individuals, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, we don't know um, anything about them outside of their names and so on. Uh, and then there's Nicholas. He was a proselyte from Antioch. What that means is, is that he was a Gentile who had come over to the Jewish faith and then subsequently had come over to faith in Christ. So he was a Gentile. That's what a proselyte is. Somebody who's like, I'm a Gentile. I'm not a Jewish person. But in that first century context, they're like, I'm worshiping Yahweh as the one true God. So this man had been that. And apparently, so it would seem, he became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, now, some note, as early as uh, F.F. Bruce, for instance, as early as the time of Irenaeus, that's around 180 A.D., possibly even earlier, that this man, Nicholas, was held to be the founder of the party of the Nicolaitans, who receive unfavorable mention in Revelation 2, uh, verse 6 and 15. You might remember when Jesus is speaking in Revelation 2, he references the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which he hated. So some people have said that this man was the founder of that. Um, but as the Cambridge Commentary notes, but even in the early ages of the church, there was much uncertainty about this matter, and there is no trustworthy evidence for connecting Nicholas with the licentious body who St. John condemns. So that's a little bit of what we know and don't know concerning the seven men who are here. More about Stephen coming, more about Philip coming. A couple other things. They are not called deacons here. They're doing deacon ministry, but they're not called deacons. You can understand these men as a kind of, note the words kind of, I'm italicizing them for you, a kind of proto-diaconate, meaning deacons in a local church have a service role. They, they minister to the tangible and physical needs of a local church. This is more ecclesiology for you. How does a local church supposed to run? I'm giving you a little bit of a summary of 1 Timothy 3. Deacons are referred to as, as some say, shock, absorber, shock absorbers for those in the eldership. They will address the tangible needs of a body and so on. It's not a leadership position, the office of deacon. The leadership position is the eldership. You see that in 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for eldership. These men are kind of proto-diaconate in the sense that they're freeing up the apostles to minister the word and give themselves to prayer while they are meeting tangible needs. 
At the same time, these men aren't limited to just like the diaconate because you see Philip, he's an evangelist. We find that out later on. And Stephen is mightily used, used in signs and wonders and so on. We'll see that a little bit more as we go on in our text. Um, one other thing to note, look at verse 6. The congregation chose these seven men. They set them before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now, the Bible has much to say about the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands in this sense, in this sense. You see it other times for healing purposes. Here, it's a sign of commissioning. It symbolized solidarity while being a means of commissioning someone to ministry. It was basically a way in which leadership, or the apostles in this case, would say, we endorse these individuals for the ministry. We have solidarity with them. We are sending, sending them forth into this ministry. I want you to note more ecclesiology, study of the church, how the church is to run. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. What does that mean? I'll break it down for you quickly. It means that somebody, if they're going to be ordained to a role in a local church, you have to know them well. You, you, you can't just lay hands on somebody hastily. For example, a pastor has to be somebody who is somebody of good reputation. For example, a deacon is somebody who has to be tested. Those things take time to see. So Paul's telling Timothy, and by extension us, don't lay hands on anyone hastily. What happens if you do is in the next part of the verse, 1 Timothy 5.22, Keep yourselves pure, is what's said, but before that, nor share in other people's sins. In other words, if eldership does not do the proper due diligence to investigate a person, and they lay hands on somebody, and that person sins against somebody in some way, they act indecently, they teach inaccurately, they bring division and hurt to a local church in some way, the eldership shares in the guilt of those sins. Why? Because they didn't do a good investigation. They hastily laid hands on somebody, and now they're a sharer in that person's sins. So Paul told Timothy, and by extension those in leadership, keep yourselves pure. How do you do that? You don't, in a hasty way, ordain somebody to any kind of position within a local church. You make sure you do due diligence. That's how you protect not only yourself from sharing in those sins, you protect the precious people that God has called you to care for. And that brings us to verse 7. All these things are rightly now in order, and look at the result. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. A lot of amazing things happening here. After the installation of the seven, and as a, as a result of the apostles being freed up to give themselves continually to the ministry of the word and prayer, what are we told? The word of God spread. In other words, the gospel, the truth that's inseparable to the gospel, the doctrine of Christ, it spread. This is one of the themes you will find in the book of Acts. This is really neat. You go through the book of Acts and you'll see a little kind of theme of the word of God spreading, the word of God multiplying. In Acts chapter 12, verse 24, later on, we'll see the scripture says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Acts 19, verse 20, we're told, So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. And such should be part and parcel of our prayer as a local church, that the word of God would prevail and be propagated, and that people would see and believe the scriptures. I want you to see this too. Before we leave this passage, you might not have caught this. 
But if you look yourself at this passage, verse 1 through verse 7, I think you will see that the Word of God is a central theme in this passage. Where do I get that from? Just follow, follow the trail, as it were. Acts 6.2, the apostle said, It is not desirable or pleasing that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. In Acts 6.4, they said, We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And in verse 7, we read, The Word of God spread. As a result of the Word of God spreading, it's not surprising that as the Word of God spread, the number of disciples um, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. You have to love that. In the very vicinity where the Sanhedrin was, where they were trying to stifle the spreading of the word of God. In that very vicinity, the word of God continued to spread and disciples were multiplied and added to the local church. And even as we're told at the end of verse 7, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So the gospel wasn't only overcoming opposition in its advance, it was overcoming opposition in bringing opposers like a great many of the priests to become obedient to the faith. What does that mean? It essentially means that they believed or they obeyed the gospel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. How do you obey the gospel? You repent and believe the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, the only way to the Father. They obeyed that command to believe by God's grace. And think who it was who came. Priests. Some of the Sanhedrin, not necessarily. Local priests. Kind of like the kind that um, John the Baptist's dad was, Zechariah. Something like that, Zacharias. Um, I think, I just think it's neat to imagine. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, one of the signs that the Messiah had come was that the leper would be cleansed. And can you imagine how many lepers were cleansed during the ministry of Jesus? And something a leper had to do when the leper was cleansed, we see this in different places in the um, New Testament, Matthew chapter 8, for instance. When a leper was cleansed, they had to go show themselves to the priests. Imagine, during the ministry of Jesus, the priests getting a whole bunch of lepers coming their way, and the priests talking with one another, I wonder what's going on. Lepers are getting well at an astonishingly quick rate lately. You could imagine that maybe, I don't know, I'm just imagining, imagining that being in the mind of these priests as they're hearing about Christ, as they're hearing about the, the grace of God, as the apostles are doing miracles like Jesus did, and then eventually by the grace of God they come to faith. Imagine what it was like for them. Quite a sacrifice for them to leave behind the prestige of being a priest. Now they became a part of the priesthood of all believers. Quite a thing for them to say, we're offering these sacrifices and we don't need to anymore? The once and for all offering has come? Like there's no need for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and rams because the Lamb of God has come? Now, I don't know what that meant for them. If in that moment they said, we're done with the whole priestly ministry, or if it clicked for them immediately, we're not told exactly, but they did come to the point of understanding that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God. And I would encourage you, if you haven't come to that place, to come to that place of obedience to the faith that they came to where they said, all of my priestly work is not going to get me into heaven. The only way I get into heaven is not my, by my priestly functions. It's by God's Son. It's His priestly function. 
Why? What's different about Jesus' priestly function versus my priestly function? Your priestly function, if you were to even call it such, if you were like these men, is tainted by sin. His priestly function was not tainted by sin. And if you offered up an offering like these priests did, bulls and goats, according to Hebrews 10, it could never take away sin. But this high priest offered himself a sinless offering. And through himself, he offered up himself. He offered up himself so that those, even those who seem furthest from the gospel, could repent of their sins and believe and be forgiven forever. I wonder if they had a great sense of relief. Somebody had noted, imagine the relief of these priests. Like, imagine if you had their job. I mean, it wasn't exactly like a joyous job, I would think. Maybe they, some parts of the job was joyous, but to think about slaughtering animals each day and for whatever your cycle of service was, but then to say, no, 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 the one has come to whom all of these sacrifices pointed to, Jesus Christ. And if you haven't come to that place, I pray by God's grace you would. There's only one way to be forgiven of your sins. There's only one way any of us could be forgiven. And it's not by doing what they were doing prior to knowing Christ. It's by doing what they did when they came to know Christ, looking to Jesus and trusting that his death stood in place of your own. He bore the wrath that you can never exhaust. He experienced, as it were, hell upon the cross so that you wouldn't experience hell in the lake of fire. If you see the gospel, that's you. You see that and you say, I look to Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection as the only means of forgiveness for my sins. I turn from my sin and I place all of my hope, all of my confidence in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing text of scripture and all the instruction therein, Lord. May you so work in us, Father, that we may treasure that once and for all offering who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your care for the church. Thank you for the order that you've shown us in your word as to how a church ought to run in places like 1 Timothy and the, the prototypes of such dynamics here in Acts 6. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would so work in us that this church, by your grace, would be marked by the working of your Holy Spirit so that as we look at one another, albeit we are imperfect and fallen and in need of your grace and the forgiveness of others so often, Lord, may you so help us that we grow in grace and are full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom and by your grace are people of good reputation that others can testify to the reality of true Christian faith being shown in our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your text. Thank you for this word. May you continue to renew our minds, helping us to apply what we've heard. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.